Hello and a warm welcome as you join us on Search for Truth. We greatly value your interest in our programmes, so thank you. Your Bible teacher Brian Johnston brings us the talk where we've been looking at significant Bible characters from the Old Testament. So far, over the last five weeks, we've studied Joseph, Daniel, Esther, Gideon and David. Uh, but today, Brian's study is about Moses. So I hope you will enjoy it. Here's Brian. Thanks, John. The most popular and widely read book in human history, the Bible, has a lot to say about Egypt. Egypt is mentioned 291 times in the first five books of the Bible and 79 times in the book of Genesis alone. Egypt's culture was obsessed with death and the afterlife. As part of this obsession, they worshipped many false deities whom they believed could enable a person's transition to heaven. Ancient Egyptians believed that one's body, image and name needed to be preserved in this world after death in order for them to enter and exist in the eternal realm. As such, Egypt developed a massive industry on dealing with death and it became the defining part of their culture. But first, a little background to the life of Moses. In Exodus chapter 1 and verse 8 we read, Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. And then into chapter 2 of Exodus. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married the daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile, with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from among the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. As his name in the original language suggests, Moses was drawn from the waters of death in infancy. He was rescued by an Egyptian princess, no less, whom we'll suggest went on to become an infamous Pharaoh herself. But back to Moses, her adopted son, who became the leader of the Israelites, his people by birth. He surely awoke many a morning in the wilderness, shaking his head in disbelief, remembering his strange past. How good of God to have put him on a fence post. Following the standard practice of the time in Egypt, Moses left unnamed the foreign monarch who assumed the role of a dreaded enemy of the slaves he led. However, we can make an educated guess as to who it was. We're trying to guess 
who the Pharaoh was at the time of the story of the Exodus. Numerous correspondence has been found between the Pharaohs and their contemporaries in other countries. One fascinating example of this is a letter from a king to a Pharaoh called Amenhotep III, in which he writes, Since your father's return from Sidon, from that time the lands have been joined to the Habiru. This suggests that the land of Sidon, which is now part of modern Lebanon, was conquered by the Habiru. Many scholars think the Habiru are the Hebrews of Egyptian times. This might be anecdotal evidence that the Hebrews had left Egypt before the reign of Amenhotep III. In other words, it points to the Pharaoh of the Exodus being Amenhotep II. In Exodus 2 and 11 we read, Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labours, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. One scholar writes that the vengeance sought upon Moses by the Egyptians was not due only to Moses' murder of an Egyptian official, but also to his possible association with a woman called Hatshepsut. Was she the daughter of Pharaoh, who came down to bathe at the Nile and saw the basket among the reeds and saw the child in Exodus chapter 2. Egyptian records do show that one particular pharaoh was married to someone by the name of Hatshepsut and they had a daughter but no sons. He, however, did have a son by a secondary wife. This son was to become the next pharaoh. When Hatshepsut's husband died, She was about 30 years old. She then reigned jointly with her infant stepson. This joint reign lasted 22 years until Hatshepsut died, after which time the stepson, whose name was Thutmose III, assumed the sole leadership of Egypt and ruled for another 33 years. An intriguing question is how did Hatshepsut assume power? How did she keep it for so long and defy tradition? as well as why the male bureaucracy tolerated this aberration. There are numerous theories that try to answer that question. The most probable explanation is that she possessed a strong character and made the most of the power that had accrued to her as regent. Although she was supposed to only be the co-regent with her stepson, her aspiration to become pharaoh was soon apparent. By year seven of her reign, she had abandoned the title and insignia of a queen and adopted the male costume of a king, including an official royal false beard. Whether Hatshepsut died a natural death or was murdered is disputed by Egyptologists. What is known is that many of Hatshepsut's monuments and statues were defaced and destroyed after her departure. Her name was erased from cartouches across the land and replaced with the names of her father or husband. This would indicate that her infant, as he was at the beginning, stepson, Thutmoses III, had been in agreement with removing her memory, which would be understandable if he had had to play a secondary role to her during the first 22 years of his reign. Could it then be that the vengeance sought upon Moses was possibly not due only to Moses' murder of an Egyptian official, 
but also to his possible association with Hatshepsut. Moses returned to Egypt to speak with Pharaoh, to say, let my people go. And that would have been around the year 1446 BC, the date we get for the Exodus from a literal reading of 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. Now, Thutmose III died about 1450, when his son, Amenhotep II, ascended the throne. It's interesting that God told Moses, go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. How were Moses and Aaron able to gain face-to-face access to the new Pharaoh? Well, if Moses was the adopted son of Hatshepsut, he would be Amenhotep II's step-uncle. In addition, it's possible that royal men and women who were raised in the palace harem remembered Moses and facilitated his access. Exodus 11 and verse 3 seems to confirm that possibility when it says that when Moses returned, he was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials. Does Amenhotep II qualify as the Pharaoh who lived through the 10th plague because he was not his father's eldest son? Yes, records show that another son was the eldest, allowing Amenhotep II to have lived through the 10th plague. Could the eldest son of Amenhotep II have died during the 10th plague, which must be true of the Exodus Pharaoh's son? Yes, one prominent Egyptologist theorises that the eldest son died inexplicably during childhood. Can the loss of over two million Hebrew slaves, certainly Egypt's slave base at the time, be accounted for in the records of Amenhotep II's reign? Yes, the loss of Israelite slaves can be accounted for by the capture of more than 100,000 slaves in Canaan during his second Asiatic campaign, the only campaign of its era. So then, if Amenhotep II is the Exodus Pharaoh, could the obliteration of Hatshepsut's image from many Egyptian monuments and inscriptions be attributed to a backlash from the Exodus events? Yes, Amenhotep II surfaces as the only logical candidate for the pharaoh who ordered this nationwide campaign of desecration. If Hatshepsut indeed was Moses' Egyptian stepmother and she is the only legitimate candidate, Amenhotep II and all of Egypt had adequate motive to remove her image from Egypt in a misguided attempt to remove her spirit from the afterlife. Moses not only led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, but guided them through the desert for 40 years, bringing them to the border of the land promised them by God. He became one of the most famous leaders God's people ever had, his name revered to this day by Israelites. Yet he had such an unlikely beginning. His curious movement between the ruling class of Egypt and their slave labour force shows the hand of God setting yet another turtle on a fence post. Our way of characterising people who didn't get where they were without God's help. From this, may we learn to acknowledge God in all our ways.
Our glorious hymn of victory uh, fits tentatively with Revelation chapter 15 and verse 3, which is the song of Moses and the Lamb. It says, Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. There's a transcript booklet, so if you'd like one or more, please tell us and ask for the title Fence Post Turtles. And now I'm about to give you our contact details, so if you've got pen and paper to hand, here they are. Search for Truth, Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester, LE5, 6LN, UK. I'll repeat that. Search for Truth, Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester, LE5, 6LN, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. And I remind you again that many titles of Search for Truth transcript booklets have been turned into e-books and are available at Amazon. So if you go to amazon.co.uk forward slash kindle dash e-books and then type Search for Truth series into the search box, you'll find them. Finally, many thanks for the privilege of your company today. Until then, very best wishes from Bible teacher Brian, studio technician David, our singers and me, John. So goodbye and may God richly bless you. <laughs>